everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman, and with me, as always, is the brains of the operation, Prashant Thayer. How's it going, man? Can't complain. I got a nice 80-degree uh, weather here, and um, I don't have to watch a Red Wings hockey game today, so I think that's two for two. Well, there you go. But we are going to talk about a couple of them, so uh, hopefully you're on board for that. Yeah, I think I can at least get through that. All right, so we got two games to cover, and uh, really a, a ton happened for for two Red Wings games. It's <laughs> kind of a, not necessarily in terms of uh, on ice stuff, although Thursday night uh, maybe in some sense. Uh, but Tuesday uh, they lose two zero to Nashville, and the big story has nothing to do with any of it. It is the Tim Peel hot mic moment. He says he gets caught saying he wanted to call a penalty on Nashville. Uh, and quickly, the NHL responds and says that he will not ref another game in the NHL. This becomes a pretty huge story. Got got a lot of run for obvious reasons. And I'm just curious, what do you make of all this from the, uh, the, the hot mic happening itself to the reaction to the fallout? So I think to start, the whole concept of this even up penalties with Tim Peel basically says, you know, I want to get a, pe- a penalty on Nashville early here. Uh, kind of the concept of an even up penalty given that he had called one maybe on Detroit in the first period. And so I think to start, the whole concept is not new. We knew this. This happens. Uh, Michael Lopez put out an article, I think, or put out a graph maybe five years ago describing this exact phenomenon, that it is one of the easiest things to predict in hockey is who gets the next penalty. Uh, So this is not an unknown thing that's been happening. It just so happens that Tim Peel said it on a hot mic and effectively confirmed that this phenomenon happens and that refs are conscious and aware of it. It's not just a subconscious thing uh, that tends to happen over the course of the game. But I think the the discourse on this was fascinating because you had a number of people absolutely blasting the NHL, blasting the refing, blasting Tim Peel personally, uh, so much... I guess, pent up anger over this. And I guess to me, I'm curious your thoughts, Max, but for me, I actually don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah. I I think that there is a, it's a, it's big, it's a big deal in the sense of it's this admittance that a single decision, you know, that a ref made, he knew was iffy um, and, and maybe even a stretch. Right. Um, and so I think that in some ways confirms a lot of the kind of, like you said, we've always suspected this, and it's the maybe the the hardest evidence we've got of a makeup call or or something to that effect. Um, but to me, it registers as like people being livid that someone admitted that they drive seventy six on the freeway. Uh, I mean, it, it, to me, this you know the, the whole topic of game management that ensued. Um, people saying just call the, call it by the book, call it by the book. Uh, that's a whole other Pandora's box here. I mean, I, I, I don't like love the idea of makeup calls. It's kind of the principle of two wrongs don't make a right. Um, but I also think you're going to be making and missing so many calls in a given game that what you're really going for is consistency. And, and to go back to my traffic analogy, it's kind of the drive with the flow of traffic thing. Like if you're not going way faster than everybody else on the highway, I wouldn't expect that you would really get a t- get pulled over, get a ticket, get in trouble, anything like that, right? So I think it's a joke that the NHL uh, reacted the way that they did to Tim Peel um, in a like, 
is he a more egregious like makeup call offender than other referees? Uh, almost certainly not. In fact, Dom Lucision had uh, some some info on this um, in his 16 stats column this week, and you know he he went through the refs that have the highest share of games within one penalty, the highest being Mark Jonette with 75 percent of their games. But really, what's shocking is the lowest share of games within one penalty, the absolute lowest. <laughs> Uh, is Frederick Lecouillet with 53.1%. So the most, the, the ref most likely to, to have like few even up calls, it's still happening in about 50% of games. And I would have a very hard time imagining that 50% of games are uh, committed uh, with that, you know, difference of kind of like infraction or egregious infraction. Now, I'm not someone who thinks that you should call every penalty. I'm not someone who says go by the book. I'm not, I'm not someone who says letter of the law. Uh, I don't even really like the idea of using replay to, to seek out that to find out whether someone broke the letter of the law. I, I think hockey is a game that is best played in flow. And that as a, I had an interaction with somebody on, on Twitter the other day, the standard you should strive for is in-game consistency. So that whatever is called a hook or a cross-check or a board seven minutes into the first period is still called a hook, a cross-check or a board with one minute left in the third period or an overtime. I think that's what you're going for. And I know referees don't want to decide games. Um, that's kind of the, the the source of this even up uh, ideology. Um, but as a lot of people have pointed out, um, that even up call mindset actually does decide games. And and so what's really deciding the game is, um, you know, wh- number one, who's committing this penalty at this big moment and number two, whether or not the team scores on it. So uh, I don't think you should have to call everything by the book. I think that would lead to way too many whistles and, and just as much controversy because, like it or not, none of us can agree what what a a real hard, you know, egregious penalty or foul or whatever is. Um, I do think you should be looking for the egregious ones, and and you shouldn't change that standard because of the moment you're in or the point in the time of game that you're in. Yeah, I I definitely agree with parts of what you just said there, and I think to start number one, making sure you capture the egregious things is incredibly important. You yeah. know, you want to make sure you're not missing the boards, you want to make sure you're not missing the head hits. You you know, and so one solution I've seen. Uh, kind of tossed around to do that is put a third official up in the box who is has maybe a little bit better uh, uh, view in the sense of being able to see everything all at once. You know, put them up in the press box, allow them to kind of visualize the game from there. They can buzz down if they see anything truly egregious, but that's really their only responsibility is making sure that nothing wild and crazy gets missed. Um, you know, you don't miss a boarding, you don't miss a hit to the head, something along those lines. Other than that, I mean... To me, you should call your rule book if you call it, but I think the the fun part about hockey is you've only got two refs on the ice, and that game is incredibly fast, and they're tracking 12 people. That is really difficult to do, especially with stuff that's away from the puck, and especially with things that you may not have a great angle to because there's four bodies on top of each other, and you just may not see that stick come up and hit them. You may not be able to figure out which stick in the mass of sticks actually hit someone in the face. Was it their stick or... Yeah. You know, was it was it a their own teammate stick? And, and that's the challenge with refing. And so one of the things that I think happens consistently in the NHL, and actually a Twitter poll by and large agreed with this, is refs on the whole miss penalties equally amongst teams. Mm-hmm. And so when you kind of put it that way, and you think about, well, how how different is the discipline level for these hockey teams? Do we think that there is a meaningful difference? in discipline between hockey teams that would result in a meaningfully different number of penalties called over the course of a season 
uh, if every single penalty was called. And that's the thing I struggle with because to me, a lot of these guys, you know, they have a lot of different coaches over the course of their career. I think some players are certainly more undisciplined than others when it comes to it. There are certainly some players that tend to walk the line more than others. But by and large, I don't think there's a meaningful difference in the way in kind of the discipline level of NHL players across the board. It's really just this, whether you have the concentration of them on one team or not. And so I guess from my standpoint, I don't really have a problem with a hockey game being called evenly because I think over the course of a season, penalties are going to be missed on either side. I think it certainly gets magnified in single game situations like the Vegas San Jose playoff game from a couple years ago where they call that a board or five minute major and they can't go back and revise it. And then, you know, you have three goals scored on the on the major penalty. I think that's a that's problematic. And, you know, certainly you see it magnified in a one game situation. But I think over the course of the season, every team's going to be equally victimized by an NHL ref missing a call. So I don't have a problem with the game being played kind of close to even for the most part, assuming that there's just not a meaningful difference uh, in, in penalties really drawn or penalties committed. Well, I don't have a problem with games being even in penalty differential. I just have a problem with officials then saying, we're going to go out of our way to call penalties that we wouldn't have called 20 minutes ago until until team A committed three penalties and we had to put them on the penalty kill three times. Now we're going to go out of our way to call something on team B because we don't want team B to have had, you know, five power plays today and team A to have only had one. I do have a problem with that because you're changing the standard for what guys uh, are, are, are expected to do. But I'm, I'm also not saying call everything that happens. I'm just saying, you know, be smart about what you're calling and don't call. I don't like ticky tack penalties. I don't like ticky tack fouls. I don't like ticky tack flags. You know, I was watching, uh, Michigan basketball in the um, round of 32 the other day, and they called Hunter Dickinson for just basically out muscling his guy down low. It drove me crazy because I didn't think that, you know, was it by the letter of the rule a foul? Oh, probably. I don't know. I don't read the basketball rule book. Um, but really what it was, is it was two guys jostling down there and one of them happened to be seven, one in a brick shit house, you know, like that's not the kind of thing that I want to see called. And that applies across sports. But if you're, if you're hacking someone or if you're, uh, cross-checking someone right in the crease. And the only reason that the ref is saying, I'm not going to call that is because, uh, he already, uh, gave your team four penalties this period or something. I think that's not great. Um, but at the same time, I can understand the kind of quote unquote game management perspective of this, that, that you don't want to, um, you know, you don't want to let, let things get out of hand. You don't want to create a overt differential because what it really is by the ref is self-awareness of how much power they do hold in a game. And at the end of the day, I took this class in college um, and uh, it, was, it was called Cultures of Basketball. And one of the things that we explored in it was kind of the, the what is a penalty? And the answer is, it's whatever the ref decides it is, right? Like we might think that the rule book decides a penalty, but for every practical purpose, a penalty is whatever the ref decides it is. And their word on that day is law. And I have yet to see a game go back and had the result overturned because the next day everyone realized that their word, which, which is law, uh, was wrong, right? So a penalty is whatever the ref decides it is. And refs know that, I think. And so what you see with even up calls is a little bit of self-awareness about that reality. Yeah. And I think I should be clear kind of with my position. I sh- I'm not su- suggesting that a ref manufacture sure, yes. a penalty or ignore something egregious. Simply, you know, they can take the standpoint of calling what they see. Uh, however, you know, recognizing that they may miss things over the course of the year. 
I think to me, if you call what you see and you see penalties, uh, by and large over the course of the season, there's just not going to be a lot of variation across teams. Uh, and ultimately you're going to end up with a result that's similar to a ref attempting this even up practice where, and, and that's to your point, Max, where it can be dangerous, where at one point you're, this is a penalty. Now you're in the last five minutes. This is no longer a penalty. You're changing your standard throughout the game. That can be a challenge for players to adapt to. I mean, we certainly see that, uh, you know, sometimes even players will comment on it that I couldn't figure out what a penalty was or I could figure out what a penalty was, but then later it changed and all of a sudden, you know, that's an issue. I mean, it's, and it certainly seems like the players almost support this just be consistent kind of mantra uh, throughout. So again, I think a lot of it got made out of it. And then going back to your point about, you know, what's the, what is a penalty? It's, it's kind of the, what the ref decides it is. Well, I think the other frustrating part for a lot of people in this whole situation is the NHL often dictates to its refs how it wants the game called. You want to see a crackdown on slashing? There's all of a sudden a ton of slashing penalties. We've seen this happen before. The whole face-off violation thing, there was a lot of them the first year the refs introduced the rule. Haven't really seen a whole lot of them since. You know, there, there's just there's certainly a change in the way that the NHL kind of wants certain things to happen. And so I think beyond just what Tim Peel said, I think there's also this belief that a lot of people think the NHL has told the refs, call the games relatively evenly, like don't allow there to be a lot of variation. And so I, it's hard to say, was this an individual ref going out and doing what the individual ref wants to do? Or, or is this part of a larger mandate from the league really saying, hey, keep the games relatively close, but this guy is happening to take the fall, which then brings me to the overall punishment, which again... And part of all this is a joke because Tim Peel was going to retire in seven games. So you literally robbed him of the last seven games of his career. It's, again, something that looks a lot worse than it actually was. So I don't know. I think it's pretty bad. Like if I'm him and that's how I'm going out after a long career, like that'd be devastating to me. I mean, he's already gotten a bunch of flack. I mean, over the years, people have not liked him because they did think he was kind of a a terrible ref in a sense. And then there was the whole issue, I think five or six years ago where uh, he went out and had drinks with Greg Wyshynski at the bar and got photographed doing that uh, as a critic. And so, you know, I mean, there's already reasons not to like the guy. I mean, I never liked him refereeing, you know, Red Wings games. There's a handful of refs where if they were, they were refing, you knew it was going to be a problem for the wings. Uh, But Again, in that grand scheme of things, like I think they're making him the fall guy, but it was seven games that he was missing. I don't think it really does anything to his reputation. I don't know. I guess that's that's to be determined. I mean, it's it's you know, frankly, there's very few refs whose names people know, uh, and you hope that it's for you know the fun reasons like Wes McCauley's uh, you know goal no goal you know fighting calls or whatever and. You know, I, I didn't know Tim, uh, whatever his name is, Donaghy's name uh, in the NBA until there was a scandal. And so I guess that's my point, right? Do we know any ref names besides the ones that are bad? Well, I just said Wes McCauley. He's I mean, Wes McCauley is is literally the only one, but also a lot of people in Michigan know him because he was Michigan State Spartan. And, you know, that's that's part of the the other allure to him there. But like Kerry Fraser's known for his singular call in the 93 conference finals and for being, you know, very much over the top. I mean, Dan yeah. O'Halloran has a reputation in Detroit for missing a lot of things. I mean, and Tim Peel has the same reputation in that regard. I mean, to me, I know NHL refs by the ones that are bad, and I don't actually really know the good ones. That's fair. I mean, that's certainly, uh, 
That's certainly fair. I mean, so I, I bring up uh, the Tim Donaghy thing and I want to credit the, I was listening to the 31 Thoughts podcast uh, on a walk earlier today and they did, I thought, a great um, segment on the betting implications of this. And I'll make the same disclaimer that I heard them make, which is that I'm not comparing these two situations at all. They're not nothing alike. Um, but, you know, one, I think the point that they made on that podcast is a good one, which is there's a betting perspective to all of this stuff now. And and betting is just bigger and bigger and bigger in how we consume sports. Um, and I could, I could see how as, as that becomes more and more of a thing, uh, you know, the spotlight that will be on stuff like officiating only grows brighter um, in part because of, you know, people worry about this stuff. So um, I wonder if that explains the punishment as much as anything else, right? Like, and that's, I think that was uh, something I took away, listened to that podcast, and I thought it made a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, especially now that the NHL sort of aligned itself yes. a little bit more with betting, again, they have to come down and take this stance. But, it, uh, and, and, and they're right. I mean, if you certainly have a ref, again, not saying that Tim Peel was involved in this in any such no, way. No, 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 that's fixing, not the case here. Yeah. Like fixing games like Tim Donahue was and, betting on those games and then calling the fouls to set that up. I mean, that is a massive scandal. But to me, that's a massive scandal, regardless of whether or not you are aligned with a betting you know, organization. I think yeah, they're the people true. who bet are certainly frustrated. Uh, the most by, mad. Right. They're the ones who are most mad. But even again with the NHL, this is a phenomenon that's been known. And honestly, predicting the next penalty is probably the easiest thing you can do in hockey right now. So... I don't know. I guess to me, it just still feels very much overblown. It was just someone saying what we all already knew. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's where I that's where I think all of this is kind of I, I like I what Tim Peel said on that hot mic is the kind of thing that, you know, yeah, it's it's not like a, a good thing to necessarily be like saying I'm doing an even up call or whatever. But um, it was nothing that I didn't assume was already happening and and nothing that I assume that, you know, most refs in the league haven't at some point or another, um, you know, done or whatever. Um, just again, my personal assumption as a viewer, it didn't shock or appall me. And so the only reason I can think that the NHL would come down hard on this is, is like the implications on that side of things. You know what I mean? And this is, again, this goes back to what I heard on 31 thoughts. This is not my original idea. It just, it was light bulbs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And that's totally fair. And I think that makes sense. And again, that's that, that you're exactly right. That's probably why, uh, the crackdown was just so much harder, but you know, it, it is, I think it is what it is now at this point. I mean, everything's kind of happened to me. It was overblown. Then the NHL reaction was thought to be overblown, but it really wasn't much of anything again, given that it was seven games, at least in my opinion. And then at the end of the day, it was just all learning and kind of confirming what we all already knew. I think that's fair. And so, you know, it's ultimately the, the, to me, the, one of the tragedies of this is that this longtime ref goes out and that's his last game. And that's what, you know, um, you know, that's the reason that I know his name, you know, on the, on the top of my head right now. Um, and I'm sure I'll forget. I forget a lot of stuff, but, um, I, I think that there's something tragic about that. And I'm not saying that he's like, you know, he's, uh, being, you know, brought, dragged in as like an innocent, you know, but, but I do compare it to kind of this speeding thing where like, if you're the one guy that gets pulled over for going 30 and a 25, when you, when every single person goes down that street at 30 or, or more, uh, I'd be, you know, I'd be like, come on, like, what are the odds that, that this is what I get? You know, this is I, I, really, this is, you're pulling me over for this, like whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, and now you've got refs. Uh, what was it in, in a game last night? I can't remember who what the game was happening. You got a ref kind of grabbing his mic as he's well, talking yeah. to Wayne Simmons. Uh, you know, it was the Leafs game, and he's he's trying to give an explanation there, and he's covering up his mic so nothing can be uh, heard from that because let you know, unless we have another fall guy there. So, which is brutal because to me, if there is a single thing that could make all of this better, it's more transparency from officiating, not more fear in officiating of what could happen when transparency comes because the league will eat its own or something like that. Right. Like yeah, to me, that's exactly it's right. a pool reporter. It's a pool reporter talking to a ref after every single game and the ref gets to explain his thinking. And maybe that factors in as he makes this call. I'm going to have to explain this to somebody after the game. So I better be damn sure that I can do that before I blow this whistle. Or, you know, do a system similar to what the NBA does. They publish their last two minutes and yes. they publish the officiating there, right? They talk about, hey, the ref got this right or the ref got this wrong. And they will publicly admit the mistake and there's the transparency. I know a lot of people, you know, are think this is a controversial thing that the NBA does because, you know, some people fall on the side of, well, you know, it doesn't, you, since you're not changing anything, but you're telling me there was a mistake, like, is that really fair but at the same time, it does illustrate, number one, the difficulty in officiating these games live. And number two, it, it does add some transparency to all of this, where if a ref has to answer for it or the league has to answer for it and talk about it, then I think it helps everyone understand what the thought process is and kind of where things are going. Yeah, I think there are, you know, one thing I think a lot of people desire in in general in life is some kind of accountability. And, and sometimes I think that gets mistaken for punishment. Um, I think sometimes people just want to see people punished. And I, you know, sometimes I think that's punishment for the sake of making you feel like whatever justice was served or whatever, even when whatever. Um, but I think accountability is a different thing and, and a, maybe a more desirable thing. Um, you know, I, I had, a, I'm going to misquote this, um, but I, when I used to cover baseball, I had a baseball player once comment, like, you know, if I keep, if I continue to mess up again and again and again, you know, it, it, I might get sent back down to AAA or something, but at the very least, like everyone, you know, I have to, you know, answer that I, I messed up or whatever, right? Or I, I think, but I think he, he left it at like, I'm going to get sent to AAA. Like what happens when the ump messes up again and again and again? It's, and it's nothing. And, and so I don't think that we need to be, you know, sending umps to AAA or sending refs to uh, the AHL or the ECHL because they missed a call. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that a lot of people, um, a lot of this could be, um, more palatable to to deal with for all parties if there was just more dialogue and more transparency about this is what happened here this is what the ref saw and we don't have to fill in the blanks because you and me can tweet i'm guessing this is what the ref was thinking here uh and we might be right um but i also think i we might be wrong a lot of time too and we might do more harm than good by trying to guess what someone else is thinking that's often the case you know like it's often the case that you do more harm than good when you try and guess what someone else is thinking even if you think you're being charitable yeah yeah, totally. By the way, was that a that baseball player you talked to, Armando Galarraga? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Uh, I never covered Armando, but uh, he'd have he'd have plenty of good reason if that were him. Yeah, you know, Jim Joyce is a guy who probably uh, many feel should have been relegated right basically immediately. And I felt horrible for him too because I think he knew right, and 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 I think that's one of the one of the beautiful things about that story is I know a lot of people still have a lot of contempt for Jim Joyce. But I got a lot of love and respect for Jim Joyce, who has said very publicly, I fucked that up, right? And we have all messed up on a – maybe not on that kind of scale. <laughs> we haven't deprived someone of something that literally cannot be uh, undone or or in that way. Um, 
but we've all messed up. And what I got a lot of respect for and, and a lot of care for is someone who's like, ah, what do you want me to say? I, I screwed that up and I will never, I will never not have screwed that up. You know, like I, I just have a lot of, uh, I guess, admiration for that um, by him. And so, and, and the only reason I have that admiration is because we had a mechanism in place where, you know, Jim Joyce was able to, to, to come out with that. So yeah. And that accountability is what you're looking for there. Right. And, and it's why people view Jim Joyce differently than they view Joe West. That's right. Joe West is not accountable. He's going to stick to what he's saying and he's going to do whatever he wants. And that's why people don't like him. But Jim Joyce, I mean, he came out, he admitted it, he apologized. And that's the accountability you're looking for here. So if the, if you could get some transparency from the NHL here on what the officiating standard is and whether it's you adopt a two minute uh, you know, discussion of calls from around the league or something along those lines, I think that's only going to lead to good things. Yeah, I would agree. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so we'll move from that into the Thursday game, um, which was a disaster. <laughs> um, you you had multiple different times that, during that game that I checked my phone and have a text from Prashant that said, you want to hear a really depressing stat? <laughs> And uh, Bobby Ryan spoiled one of them be- before it could become uh, before it could become canon. He scored before, just before the Red Wings got to their longest uh, scoreless streak in franchise history. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was tracking this back, and I was all the way back into the mid seventies, um, just looking for the longest scoreless streak by the Red Wings because they had been shut out again in the first game against Nashville. They had been shut out in the game prior. And then they, Robbie Fabry scored at about the nine-minute mark of the third period uh, in the game where he scored a hat trick. So he had about 11 minutes of carry over there. And and as the Wings were approaching the end of that first period, they were starting to run up on you know almost 140 minutes without a goal, uh, which was about 20 minutes away from the franchise record, uh, at least that I was able to track through. But Bobby Ryan... Uh, saves this team from entering the the, re- the record book for another reason. Unfortunately, though, that was the only goal scored by the Red Wings, and Rocco Grimaldi uh, scored four. He actually more than doubled his season output in in one period. In in fact, about three minutes, he did that. So, ultimately, not the best of games for the Red Wings. No, and there was it was really one of those games, and there's really only been three or four like it this season. The, the most obvious uh, analog being that game in Tampa where they gave up three three goals in the first like five minutes or whatever it was. But you know, Rocco Grimaldi had a hat trick eight minutes into this game. It was four to zero eight minutes into this game. At that point, the Red Wings are not scoring five goals. I mean, that that's happened a couple times this year, um, but it hasn't happened under those circumstances with that kind of comeback staring them down. Um, I mean, and so that I think is one of those kind of quintessential rebuild moments of like, you're going to watch this whole game knowing there's not only no hope for them to win, but you know, it's it, the mood of it is such that it's like, just like one long bandaid rip, I think for, for people tuning in. And so uh, I was writing a story that was unrelated. So I, I have to admit, I was only kind of half watching the rest of the way once that happened. Um, but 
you know, it, it, suffice to say, it didn't get a whole lot better. Thomas Grice gave up three of those goals. Calvin Pickard came up and gave up, uh, came in and gave up four. Uh, Bobby Ryan got the the one goal for the Red Wings, like we said. Um, but really, just like you know, that's the best way I can put it. One long band aid rip for for two and a half hours. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you said this is the kind of game that has only happened a couple of times this year. This is the fourth game this season. The Wings have given up seven or more goals. But not all of that. Like, there was that one game where it was like a one-goal game, and then they got, you know... Yeah, it was the game against Dallas. It was actually... uh, It was the game where Tyler Bertuzzi got hurt, right? Where the Wings... It was a 4-3 game, and then the Wings actually end up losing that 7-3. But still, they're the same effect. I mean, giving up seven goals on four separate games this season... That's actually something they didn't do last year. Last year, they only did it three times. Now, granted, they, they missed 11 games, but to have done it four times in 34 games, I think is very telling and frustrating. You know, we mentioned, and you and I have talked about this, and maybe this is the perfect segue into how does this year really compare to last year, but uh, we, we talked about how this team was much closer in games, much tighter in games, but the blowout games are still there. The mm-hmm. the Defensive collapses are still there. In fact, you know, having four such games in in a season is uh, highly problematic. I mean, this is honestly one of the worst stretches uh, you've seen from the Wings since uh, back in 1819, uh, where they lost back to back games, uh, giving up eight at Boston and then seven to Montreal. Uh, that was probably the only other time that I think you had a lot of those games in such close proximity. So it's a uh, it's still not great to watch. Well, so you you already took it there. Let's let's do that for 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 the, the next ten minutes or so. Is this season better than last? I actually think the answer is slam dunk. Yeah, but I'm getting the impression that you think it's uh, maybe not so much a slam dunk. So I think it comes down to what do you think? Like, what were you expecting from a progress standpoint uh, from this team? And really, what was rock bottom? Because I think that's what a lot of people have been searching for. Like. When are we going to see rock bottom for this team? And how long is rock bottom going to last? I mean, we've looked at the Buffalo Sabres. They are still in rock bottom, and it's been seven years. But in reality, their rock bottom was 13-14 and 14-15, having back-to-back seasons with sub-55 points. I mean, that was you know a complete train wreck. They were able to jump back up the season after. Now this season looks like they're back on their way down. But they had a rock bottom, and then they climbed out of it after about two years. This team right now, this Red Wings team, has three more points than they did last year at this point. They have one more win than they did at last year at this point. Their expected goals for percentage at 5-on-5 last year was 43.5. This year it's 44.4. They they are playing marginally better than they did last year. And really the benefit of it is they're scoring a touch more at 5-on-5 than they did last year, and they're not giving up as many goals at 5-on-5 as they did last year. And that's what's allowed at least the score to look good. But from a playing style standpoint, I mean, the the results are very similar in the process being the expected goals for percentage, the quality of chances they're taking versus the quality they're giving up is also quite similar. So I think you have to wonder, are we in a protracted kind of rock bottom period here and we haven't necessarily seen the same progress that you and I were expecting to see. I don't disagree with with that it's going to be a longer way out of this than maybe I would have thought a year, two years, maybe even this preseason ago. Um where I struggle is like with the idea of rock bottom. Um I mean what odds would you give the Red Wings of coming out and beating Columbus on Saturday? We're recording this on Friday night. 
I mean, to be quite honest, this is a hockey team that has shown that it can rise up against the best teams and fall completely flat on their face against others. And would I mean, you have we said were, that last year? I think I don't think I would have said that last year. So at least that's kind of where on, I'm coming from. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, if you want to look at it from that standpoint, I mean, they've been able to beat Carolina. They've been able to beat Tampa this year. Those are wins that they probably wouldn't have had last year. At the same time, though, if you know, when I look broadly from the stats perspective of how the wings are looking compared to last year. And then I take the individual players. Is there a single individual player on the Red Wings this year that you would say is performing better than they did last season? No, I think that's true. Uh, uh, Maybe Philip Zadina. Okay, Marstall wasn't here in Detroit (laughs) last season, right? But of everybody that was on the Red Wings last year, is there a single single player actually playing better than they did last season? And I struggled with the question because I couldn't answer with anybody except for maybe Tyler Bertuzzi, except we've seen him for only a handful of games, right? So we can't really say for sure. But to me then, then what that tells me is the difference in what I'm seeing is simply variance. It's not really progress it's random luck that the wings just didn't have last year now going in your favor i mean you're i just can't find it i can't figure out what's going on it's a very good point i mean i don't think larkin has like fallen off a cliff and i think he's he's been worse offensively and he's made up for it defensively in that way i would say he's kind of held serve and overall impact um but you make a very good point there's very few players that you could say are having better seasons this year than they did last year now what I would also say is one of the themes of this offseason that we talked about was addition by subtraction. That happened. And there was also some addition by addition. Troy Stetcher, John Merrill, I think Vladislav Domestnikov has been a nice pickup. Um, I think, you know, a guy like Robbie Fabry, I expected to to take a downturn. I think he's pretty much held serve. Um, I don't think he's been better. I thought he was really good last year. I think he's about that good this year. Um, so, but what I think is what you're seeing is you're seeing a team that maybe better combines into something that's, uh, you know, more effective and, and more of a threat than you saw last year. Um, and I actually would say that it maybe is a good sign that they've been able to do that without their top guys, you know, taking it to another level. Because if you believe there's still another level in there, which is its own thing, but if you believe there's still another level in Zadina, in Larkin, in Mantha, um, then that would tell you, hey, when that when that shows up, um you know, maybe they, you know, th- those are really the nights that they will beat a Tampa, that they will beat a Carolina. And it's not something they could expect to do over a seven game series yet. Um, but I, I just think there through last year, when I went to the rink on any given day, I thought it was like a 25% chance that I was going to see them win a game. And today when I go, it feels more like a 40% chance, 33% chance, something like that. That's marginal. That's it's not like they've been like good. Um, but I think there's a difference in like, they give themselves a chance to, win on most nights and often by the end of that game, you know, they've lost or they've lost by even two, sometimes three goals. If there's like an empty netter or whatever, um, I would say that this game, like this Nashville game felt more common last year, even if the margins would tell you really, you know, that there it's, it's happening still pretty often. And so to me, there's, it's a lot about kind of feel, and I know that can sometimes be in conflict with some of this stuff that we want to measure. And, and frankly, that feel can sometimes be misleading. Um, so I definitely want to acknowledge that. But it is that I, I can I, it is kind of a feel thing for me of, 
you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they come out and they beat Columbus 4-2. It wouldn't stun me if they lose 4-2 either. I mean, they just lost to him 4-1 a couple weeks ago. But I don't think, had I watched that Nashville game uh, in 2019-20, that I would have had really any uh, thought that they were going to come out and win the next night. It would have had to be something that they would have had to first lose a close game before they could then pull a win. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Like, if you're evaluating this from a feel standpoint, I turn on these hockey games expecting the Red Wings to be competitive, which is something I cannot say last year. I walk away from watching a Nashville game like, you know, the last game of that series going, huh, I was not expecting that to happen. I was not expecting them to get steamrolled and lay down completely flat. I was expecting them to be a little bit more competitive. But, you know, the the struggle I've had is as you step back and, and review just again, on the whole, what the numbers have looked like and how they compare to last season. I mean, the process is similar. The only thing that's really different is the goal differential is minus 41 instead of minus 58. Um, so you have 17 fewer goals there. Uh, but beyond that, there's not, to me, a single player that's really, truly playing better. And you know me, I'm a sucker for you know pulling parallels back to historical teams. One team that I thought the Wings could potentially parallel was the 16-17 Avalanche, where that team goes out, they win 22 games, 48 points. That team's got Nathan McKinnon, Miko Rontanen, Gabriel Landeskog, Tyson Berry, completely loaded. All those guys have duds of seasons. But then the following season is a 97-point Nathan McKinnon, you know, a 70-some point Miko Rontanen, almost a point per game Gabriel Landeskog, And it's those three guys that take their game to the next level and basically pull Colorado forward. Now, there's a little bit of a difference as those guys were about four or five years younger than the Red Wings core right now. They probably had that gear as a part of their natural development. Obviously, McKinnon was a a very high pick. Landis Gog, a high pick. Rotten in a high pick. So they all have maybe that pedigree that the Wings three didn't. But I was expecting almost to see a similar step forward from the Red Wings trio. Obviously, we haven't seen enough of Tyler Bertuzzi to know it. But to me, Larkin is at least, you know, in line with last season, maybe if not a little bit below. And Anthony Mantha is nowhere near where he was last year. And so that's the challenge is now how how long is this rock bottom going to be if your stars aren't moving forward and if they're stagnating? And, and and I think, you know, it's easy to look at rock bottom as a moment or it's or you can look at it the other way, which is as like a team. Like to me, when I when you say rock bottom of the Red Wings rebuild, I think it would take something uh, really powerful to top the night before Thanksgiving 2019. That game where the Maple Leafs looked like every line of the Maple Leafs looked like the Russian five out there. Like it was absolute domination. And I will never forget it because I was trying to get to the bar to meet up with some of my college friends. And it was just an, an unending display of dominance uh, by the Toronto Maple Leafs that night. Um, and in the locker room afterwards, it was as miserable as I've ever seen these guys. Uh, it will take something big to outdo that as the rock bottom moment of the Red Wings rebuild. But rock bottom as a state of being in terms of like, you know, you're in the bottom three and it, and I don't think you can get out of it next year. That's where they are. I don't think they're getting out of the bottom. And maybe maybe five because there's there's enough bad teams that you can have some different ordering in there. Right now, I think they're like, what, third from the bottom. Yeah, they, they're pretty close with like Anaheim and Ottawa. So you could order those three teams in several different ways. Buffalo is going to finish last, but they're going to be bottom five this year. And I think they're going to be bottom five next year. 
almost regardless of what Steve Eiserman does. And if he does something drastic and he trades a, a young roster player for a prospect or a pick, I'm only more cemented in that. And, and in fact, I would think that you add another year of that on at that point. Um, so in that sense, I think they are still rock bottom. I still think they're a team that has very slim playoff hopes uh, next season, if if any. Um, that, I think that's a slam dunk take. I agree with that completely. Yeah. And so if that's a slam dunk take and we're agreeing that none of the Red Wings kind of top players, again, setting Tyler Bertuzzi aside because of his nine games, have made the move forward. Then going back to our conversation from the last podcast, does that not absolutely increase the impetus to trade Mantha and or Bertuzzi and or have a conversation about Dylan Larkin? Well, what I would say is a, di- is a difference there. Uh, I would say that part of the reason that I think that this year has felt better is a degree of maturation on the part of um, you know some of these guys. They've been through it before. It doesn't hit them as maybe hard. They they know a little bit better how to dig out of something like this. And um, you know, I think they are better for having been through last year. Um, I would still not can if I was Steve Eisman, I would not entertain a Dylan Larkin trade. Um, I am to the point where I think you could entertain a trade on one of the other two. Um, I don't know that I would do both, but it depends on what you got offered. You know, I, I, uh, I had an article today. I don't know if you had time to read it cause I put it out kind of late on a Friday, which is kind of a, a do not do in, in the beat writing business. And I did it anyway, um, where I tried to kind of recreate two of what I think are Iserman's best hockey trades as lightning general manager. Um, there's a lot of things he did well. He drafted like crazy, um, with, with the help of a great scouting staff. Yes. He inherited Steven Stamkos and Victor Hedman, but I think he made some great trades and some great hockey trades in that span. Now the Red Wings can't replicate all of them. They can't really do the, uh, the Martin St. Louis deal. Cause they don't have Martin St. Louis. Uh, and they can't really do the Ryan McDonough, JT Miller deal because they're not ready to push those kind of chips in right now for established guys. But the two that I identified were the Ben Bishop trade where Eisenman traded Corey Conacher, kind of an up and coming breaking through player, um, for Ben Bishop, who was a guy in a goalie situation in Ottawa where they had Craig Anderson was being really steady as a starter in net. And an emerging young goaltender by the name of Robin Leonard was bursting onto the scene. You take advantage, you get a really nice young goaltender, and oh, he finishes top three in the Vezina in two of the next three seasons. The other one was uh, the Duran for Sergachev trade, and the one I threw out there was like a Bertuzzi for Jake Bean. Similar kind of concept. You go hockey trade, positional, you know, good good forward for young up-and-coming uh, defensemen. Bean's older than Sergachev, Bertuzzi's older than Duran was. Um, but it's just kind of a parallel I drew. But I don't I don't think it's unreasonable to make that same kind of deal around one of the other forwards, whether that's Zadina or Mantha or whatever. That's just the one I threw out there in the article. Um, but my point being, I think it's totally reasonable to have those kind of discussions. The one I, I comped for the Conacher Bishop trade was Fabry for Chris Dreger. And, and I know Dreger is going to be an unrestricted free agent. So I, I put in there with a contract extension because you are not trading for a rental right now if you're the Red Wings. Um, but I, I, I think there's merit my point being to, to talking about one of those young forwards whether it's Bertuzzi Mantha Fabry whatever um, in a trade right now that that makes you better long term for what you need um, I, I would still kind of shield Larkin off in a different way I think it's a different situation with him I think he's a harder piece to find in in some you know several different ways um, but you know and I, I certainly would not force a trade on one of those other guys but I, I think it's more than fair to listen I, I do think that's where you know I, I had someone comment today that we put too much stake in 
in windows and, and ages. And that's a take I actually agree with. Um, but I do think you have to care about it when, when you have the opportunity to get something significant and I, I'm not trading someone just cause they're not going to be 27 when I'm good. But if, if they're not going to be under 30 when I'm good and I can get something, someone who is, um, that's something I'm always open to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally fair. I mean, obviously you're not trading these people for the sake of trading them because they're, they're old, but you should absolutely be exploring hockey deals for those guys. And, you know, it's just something that I was, I've been thinking about as as you sit back and just think about the stock of each of these players this year and, you know, who's moving forward and who's not. I mean, even some of the younger guys that the Wings are kind of counting on to do, to do more, your Philip Zadinas, your Michael Rasmussens, you haven't really seen it as much. You know, Zadina had a little bit of a, you know, tear where he was able to get some some goals and some points. But, you know, at five-on-five five play, he hasn't really been the driver of offense that you were hoping for. And then, you know, Michael Rasmussen at five-on-five five has four assists. He has no goals. He, at times, looks very much invisible on the ice. And so he doesn't seem to be really finding his stride as much as you were hoping for in a full season uh, you know, up in up in Detroit. And and obviously we've seen kind of short looks of Giovanni Smith and Evgeny Svechnikov, but again, neither of them seem like they're going to be that kind of big difference maker in the long run. So it does kind of push the onus on, well, then maybe I have to wait on this next wave. The next wave being the Moritz Sider, Jonathan Berger, and Lucas Raymond, that tier of players to really come in, which does mean that the guys at the top right now who are in that 25, 26 range, you, you're not forcing them out of your window. You know, you're not forcing them out for pennies, but you should be exploring for if there's a deal that makes sense for my team that potentially makes me better in the future um, or at least gives me someone comparable, but maybe in a different spot right now, then absolutely I should be thinking about that deal. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And so I think that's you know something that you look at and – and and you have to be open to it, but you know, I I just think there's uh, this time of year fuels a lot of this like kind of speculation, and I am part of that. You know, that's I'm a I'm someone who writes a lot about the trade deadline, and so I I certainly recognize that I'm part of that. But I think what you want to avoid is getting into a situation where um, you're pushing for one of your few um, you know real positives of this rebuild so far to go away if it's not the right return. And so it, I don't think you sh- you rush into any of this. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you shouldn't be making uh, a deal like Buffalo makes, you know, with Eric Stahl retaining half and getting a third and a fifth. To me, that's that that's absolutely nothing. You're not selling short here, but you should be, you know, exploring deals that are going to be compatible for your team in the future uh, if if those present themselves. We're going to get into the mailbag in a minute here, but I have a mailbag question that I'm going to present to you that is from. Uh listener host max <laughs> to you uh does the eric stall trade in your mind mean anything for luke lindenning's market no because eric stall is a very different player than luke lindenning eric stall had a no trade clause with only 10 teams on it buffalo uh seemed like they're just willing to sell them to get them out they took uh far less than they should have so i don't read anything into that the market should be very different for those two guys because the pedigree is way higher for stall for a role that you would still think he's going to be playing kind of a down lineup veteran center role. And the pedigree is way higher. Yeah. We're talking about a guy who has 400 goals in his NHL career versus a guy who has 50. So how does one only, you know, how does that first guy only get a third and a fifth round pick and 
you know, you know, we've been talking about Glendening getting a third or a fourth. If Eric Stahl's only getting a third and a fifth, like that, to me, I would be a little antsy if I'm the guy trying to trade Luke Glendening. Like the the best way to describe why that happens is the Nat Geo guy that's got like his hair almost looking like he's been electrocuted <laughs> and he's holding his hands up. You guys all know the meme and the word above his head is Buffalo. That's why that <laughs> happens. I mean, you retained 50% on a very good center that has a history of scoring 400 goals that can play third line center and score still at his age. I mean, Eric Stahl, I believe is 35, if I remember correctly, still very much a capable hockey player. You retained 50% and only got a third and fifth from a team that had multiple thirds, multiple fifths and multiple seconds. And you got the worst version of all of those. So it's Buffalo. That's why. Yeah. It's a great trade for Montreal. I, you know, I've got like an affinity for all the Midwest cities and especially the ones that take a lot of, uh, barbs, you know, like I, I adore, uh, obviously I, I live in Detroit, uh, right outside Detroit. Uh, I adore Cleveland. My girlfriend used to live in Cleveland. I have all the love in the world for Pittsburgh where I was an intern and I really, really love Buffalo. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know why, but it's, so I, I've got this complex where I love all those cities, um, and I feel really bad for the people of Buffalo who I think would go absolutely nuts for a winning hockey team there. Yeah, I mean, you see what's happening with the Bills right now. They they deserve the Sabres to be good again, um, but at least they have the Bills to deal with right now, whereas, you know, here in Detroit, we're kind of stuck with the Tigers, the Lions, and the Pistons, and so all problematic. Prashant's dog just uh, entered the chat, burst into the room, and jumped up and sat rather peacefully uh, on the couch behind him. I just thought that was adorable and felt like you only had to know that. <laughs> you want to do the mailbag? Yeah, let's do it. Anything jump out at you? I know Lars and Rowan have been spamming my mentions for like the entire time we've been recording with banter. And so we're going to have to sort through all of that uh, to get to all of this stuff. One, one person asked... Uh, what the best airport drink was, but it's already buried in all of Rowan's comments. So I got to find out who that was. Oh, it's John Evans. What's the airport drink? And he says, and why is it gin and tonic? Um, I mean, I'm not going to drink a gin and tonic just because I don't really like gin. I will always order a whiskey um, at the airport. Actually, it really doesn't matter where I'm at. I'm just going to order How do you order it? Oh, I mean, it's neat. Yeah. Whiskey neat. Yeah. You don't put an ice cube in it unless it's something super hot. So... For me, that's going to be it. I'm going to pick something that seems reasonably priced and and just go from there. Gin and tonic is my like sitting around at home drink. Uh, Allison and I will will make gin and tonic. She makes them very well. Um, if I'm at like an airport bar, I'm probably getting a beer. <laughs> um, but if not, I'm I'm maybe getting like a uh, margarita or something that I can really like enjoy. And you know, I, whiskey for me is like you're going out for like a night with like you know four buddies, and you're just gonna. Uh, you know, go sip whiskey for four hours kind of thing. I don't know that, I, that that's my go-to at an airport bar. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Uh, what else do we got? Tori Harrington wants to know about Thomas Grice. He says, is he just not good? Uh, we've talked before about, you know, the difficulties of goalies changing teams and adjusting to new situations. We're more than halfway into this season. It has not gone well at all for Thomas Grice. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is here. Um, You know, I think I've briefly alluded to the concept of 
goalies uh, having certain styles that are more conducive to playing in certain systems than others. And potentially it is a lot tougher to change those things around, even as you move from team to team. I think people have kind of made that point, particularly with Sergei Bobrovsky going from a very structured Columbus system to a less structured Florida system and how that potentially changes you know, where rebounds get kicked out to, decisions that he makes with the puck, and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I mean, I thought Thomas Grice in, in, on, on Long Island was a very structured and uh, centered goaltender, but watching him, he seems very scrambly. I mean, I think if you look at uh, maybe it was Grimaldi's third goal against Nashville, sharp angle shot along the goal line, and Grice's almost facing away from the shot as he's sliding over to it because he's almost trying to reflex his way to the puck instead of just moving in a very compact motion. I think when you watch Jonathan Bernier, one of the things that stands out is just he is so in control of his movement. He is, it's very point A to point B in position, always set, always square to the shooter, literally all the hallmarks of the butterfly and you watch other goaltenders like Pickard and Grice and Jimmy Howard from last year, they are all over the place. I actually think it probably has to do with Grice just maybe being a little too aggressive on shooters, uh, but that's just a theory more than anything else. All right. Um, a lot of these other ones are about Jeff Blaschel, so I'm going to just pick one of them that I think covers the whole thing. It's from Chris. He says, two things. What's your response to the fire Blaschel now crowd? And conversely, what is your response to the no point in firing him now crowd? It's a good question. I mean, I think at the beginning of the season, you and I both said it doesn't make sense to fire him in a pandemic. You're basically your replacement's going to have to come from in house, uh, and in all likelihood, your replacement is not any better. It doesn't change the trajectory of the system or and where you're going this season. And we also kind of alluded to the fact that last year the players never quit on him. I mean, they always told you that in in media scrums and whatnot that. Uh, they were more frustrated with themselves, frustrated with their own play. They appreciated him as a coach. And so it's kind of hard to to get there when the players tr- truly buying into him. But that being said, I mean, other, co- other teams are making coaching changes. Uh, other teams are making coaching changes and bringing guys from outside in. I mean, you look at Calgary uh, bringing in uh, Daryl Sutter back. You look at Buffalo obviously firing Ralph Kruger. Um I guess at what point is enough enough? To me, this was in line with what was expected this year. You could have argued that Calgary had higher expectations going out, getting Chris yeah. Tanev, Jacob Markstrom, Buffalo had higher expectations, getting Eric Stahl, uh, Taylor Hall, having Jack Eichel, et cetera, et cetera. They had higher expectations. To me, this is just in line with what I expected. So I, I don't know. You can fire him, and I don't think it makes a difference. You keep him, I don't think it makes a difference. Yeah, my my reaction to both of those is like, you know, you guys have opinions. It's not I don't feel the need to police your opinions on how you think of that stuff. I mean, it's going to play out one way or the other. Um, you know, I have thought that it doesn't make a lot of sense to make a coaching change during the pandemic in particular for this team that's already down one assistant coach that they didn't replace in the offseason. Um, you know, I, I think that if they do replace him, they're going to quickly realize that he wasn't the problem. Um, But, you know, it's the eternal thing of like when you're in this mode and this is what Buffalo's gotten trapped in is like you you bring someone new in and it doesn't work because your team's not good enough. 
and then you fire them and then you bring someone in and the team's still not good enough and you just get into this revolving door. And I think that can make it worse. And because you make one coaching change doesn't mean you're going to make like six in nine years or whatever Buffalo has done. Like, I'm not saying that once you make that move, then you're, you're condemning yourself to get into the cycle of this revolving door. Um, you know, I, I, it's just, it's not something I have an opinion on, uh, the, the fan reactions that is, um, I think people are more than entitled to their opinions on this. And I, I feel the frustration uh, that I, that I get, get exposed to, uh, in my mentions on a basically daily basis. Anytime I tweet out a quote, people say something to that effect, uh, you know, one way or the other. Um, and so I know people hold those opinions strongly and I think they should like the second that they stop caring, the second that they stop, uh, you know, having opinions is a, is a scary moment for me as someone who covers this team. You know, I, I want everyone to be interested and to have strong opinions. So uh, I guess that's what I would say to that question. Yeah, I mean, that's that's completely it. I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I don't think there's a right answer. I don't think there's a wrong answer. I mean, you know, for the people who are pushing a farm, like you said, Max, you, you fire a coach and because you have overinflated expectations and then you bring someone new in and then you fire a coach. And all of a sudden you have a prized prospect in Rasmus Dahlin who's going to see four coaches yep. in four years, right? I mean, and, and then how does that affect his development? Um, you know, we've kind of touched that maybe Blashill has has been beneficial in the development of some of these guys from Grand Rapids to Detroit. I mean, you look at kind of Tyler Bertuzzi as, as kind of a shining example. There are other guys where I think people would say, no, that hasn't been the case. But ultimately there are, there are risks to continually turning over coaches uh, when the problem is simply not enough talent on the roster. I think Jeff Blaschel is a good coach. That does not mean that there's never been a situation where a team could make a change from away from a good coach because they needed a new voice. Those are not mutually exclusive things. Um, I, you know, I don't know that I have an opinion on what they should do, but you know, the, the general opinions that I hold are, he is a good coach uh, the Red Wings are still going to be extraordinarily bad next season, uh, regardless of who's behind the bench. And that, 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 those two things in itself do not mean that they need to give him a new contract. Although if they do, I think that that's justifiable for those reasons. Um, but again, that's not me saying they have to do this or they're, they're one thing or the other, you know, that's just, that's kind of what I believe. And, uh, I know a lot of people out there disagree and I think that's perfectly fair too, you know? Yeah. All right, last one, Beer League Chump. What's your preference for Detroit's first-round draft pick? And supposing that player is gone, who are your next three to four preferred targets in order? What he's trying to do is he's trying to trick me into revealing my Red Wings draft board before I can publish it in a few weeks. So I'm going to give this one to you, and then I'll just make little comments on the side of it. Fair enough. I mean, you know, for me, I think I've been pretty consistent in who I think the Wings should take. Obviously, a lot of it's going to depend on where the wings end up drafting. Cause as of right now, they're slated for third with the new lottery uh, changes taking effect this season, where only two teams can jump, move up a max of 10 spots. So uh, potentially with that and Seattle entering the draft, uh, the wings may pick somewhere between three and six would probably be most likely uh, here. So I think in that range, uh, if, if one of the centers is available, so whether it's Matty Beneers or William Eklund, I think, those are guys that I'm certainly leaning on being at the top of my draft board. Probably William Eklund's the top of mine, followed by Matty Beneers right now. After that, I think it's kind of a mix of who you're interested in at that point. There's a handful of great wingers out there. Um, and then there's a handful of kind of top defensemen. I mean, Owen Power's a guy that 
obviously, you know, Michigan uh, has to withdraw from the uh, Frozen Four, unfortunately, because of the COVID test being positive. But Owen Power is a guy who absolutely turned his season around over the second half of the, the year in terms of his ability to play. I think he's a guy that you can think about. I think Luke Hughes is a guy who has all the tools, but will certainly need a little bit of work in the defensive zone. Um, you know, and then Brant Clark's a guy who's certainly found his game over in Slovakia as another guy who I think would factor into the mix there for me. So really, you know, Beneers, uh, you know, you look at uh, Eklund and then one of those three defensemen, I think would probably be the, the top five guys I'm looking at. Yeah, I mean, I think that Owen Power will go number one. I think that's probably who I would take number one. Um, I think there's a, a, a nice blend there of floor and ceiling. Um, but I, I would be lying to your face if I said that I wouldn't really be strongly tempted to take Matt Beneers wherever I was picking as a GM, anywhere inside of that top five. If if he was sitting on the board, I, I would that would be the hardest name for me to pass on, I think, at any spot. Even if even saying that I think I'd probably end up taking Owen Power, I would be very hard-pressed to pass on a guy like Matt Paneers, who I think, you know, I'm not sure how much he's going to score. I'm pretty sure he's going to do just about everything else well. And if he does score, that translates into a hell of a player. Yeah, exactly. And I think he's going to give you a Dylan Larkin type of player. And I I would consider that in this draft at number one overall, you know? Yep. Yep, exactly. You know, what what I see in power is I see a a hulking mobile defenseman who I think makes – you know, high level passes in the offensive zone and can give you offense in that way. It's not going to be in the Kale McCarr way, um, but I don't think that's the only way to create offense and the only way to be valuable. Um, you know, so I, I think that Owen Power is the kind of guy that he has the potential to turn into this asset that is so coveted, which is a rangy, big defenseman um, who can help you in, in every part of the ice. And so I would have a hard time passing on that. But, um, I, you know, having watched a, a good number of Michigan's games this year, um, I think Beneers had the best season of any of those three, um, you know, 2021 eligibles, the other being Kent Johnson, who's extremely skilled. Yep. Yeah. Beneers had a, just a sensational uh, season. I mean, take a look at Mitch Brown's uh, yep. tracking data from, from uh, elite prospects, check out his article on EP ringside uh, for a little bit more information there, but Beneers, yeah, absolutely had a monster year. Yeah. All right, I think uh, that should do it for us today. We'll be back at you guys next week. Sorry this episode uh, came out later than uh, it was supposed to. I uh, I had a late-breaking thing come up on Wednesday, and this was the earliest we could uh, push it to. So we should be back on more like our regular schedule next week, and uh, we'll talk to you then after the Red Wings play a couple games against Columbus. Take care. Take care.